Uh, good evening. Uh, my name is Tandikam Kandawire. I'm, I'm a professor at LSE. Uh, it gives me great joy to chair this session for, for one very strange reason, that Kwesi and I were together at, at uh, some institute years back in Copenhagen, yeah. and it's the first time we meet in about 20 years. Almost. <laughs> 20 years. And, and it's quite re remarkable. We took such... We went in different directions and ended up at the LSE together. Emmanuel uh, Christian Anning is in, he's, uh, he's the director of the, uh, the Faculty of Academic Affairs at the Kofi Annan International Center for Peace, uh, peace Training and Peace in Ghana. And uh, this is one of the major centers that carries out both training and research on conflict and conflict resolution, and uh, which is... Um, as some of you may know, is a major preoccupation in Africa. <coughs> He's done an amazing amount of work, both as researcher but also as advisor to a wide range of organizations that are involved in peacekeeping uh, in, in Africa. I was just going through some of your writings there, and uh, I noticed the, the incredible intersection of the work you're doing between peace and normal conflict, the drug trafficking problem, civil wars and the new terrorist problematic and how these otherwise separate realms of conflict actually in the case of Africa, well, I suppose not only in Africa, but it turns out they, are, they feed on each other in some sense. And, and one, is, one is compelled to engage in a, a much broader research agenda than one starts off with. I recall when you were in Copenhagen, where you were, what you were doing then and how how big the agenda has become. So I'm, I'm very delighted to have Dr. Anning here, and he will be with us for the next one and a half hours, and he will speak about 45 minutes, 40, 45 minutes, and then we'll have some time for, for discussion. Sure. Well, Tanika, uh, let me thank you so much, and let me also thank um, Kate, uh, whose work I've read over several years, and the first thing I'm actually seeing here. Um, to my dear old friend, Masha, um, I won't tell you some of the stuff that we do when she comes to visit us and to teach in Accra, so I, I think we will leave that for the post-talk drinks. Um, the last time I was here was quite a number of years ago, probably about uh, 17 years ago, when I was a PhD student here uh, with uh, James Mayor as my supervisor, uh, so it's been quite some time. So it's good to be back. Um, I would have wished that I came back after 17 years and spoke about something more fascinating uh, than narcotics and the way that is beginning to threaten uh, West African states. But be that as it may, um, Mali is on the agenda. <clears throat> there is no business like the narcotics business in West Africa. It transforms lives. It gives access to political power. It makes... It makes you a community leader. What narcotics is doing to West Africa, basically, is that I am not the role model in any West African society. None of you will be a model in West African societies because you don't have the financial gravitas um, to make sure. But how has this come about? That is the story I want to tell about the way that West African states are threatened by a complex network of uh, trafficking gangs colluding uh, with the political class 
and increasingly uh, um, communities accepting the financial spin-offs that arise from their businesses. So part of the argument that I'll be making this evening is that most West African countries really are under increasing threats you know, by increasingly powerful transnational organized criminal uh, networks. And that we'll, I'll be focusing on the, on the nexus between drugs, crime, and you know, increasingly violent acts. And the, my argument is that the huge financial spin-offs that arise from criminal activities contribute increasingly to what I term as opportunistic relationships uh, between you know, criminals, uh, politically violent groups on, on, on the one side, and you know, uh, West Africa's uh, 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 political class on the other. Please don't be worried for me because I say this in West Africa and I even say it much more bluntly than I'm saying it here. Um, what I'll try to demonstrate is that this, what I term as the profitable collusion amongst different actors, hollows out or has hollowed out West African states. They become false edifices, allowing corruption, criminality, and impunity to flourish. Um, now, when I speak this way, West African presidents get extremely angry, and I'm a personal non grata in quite a number of countries. Not that I intend to visit them anyway. Uh, I think uh, I want to enjoy life a little bit more, so I don't intend certainly to go to a country like the Gambia, for one. Uh, I don't intend to go to certain parts of Nigeria and certainly certain parts of my own country, Ghana. But I think if we want to start the story, at, at least in the more recent past, I think the last uh, 15 years uh, is showing how West Africa has become a major transit, and not only a transit point, but a repackaging hub for cocaine and heroin flowing from Latin America and from the Asian countries. It's not only becoming transiting and repackaging, but we are also storing and increasingly about, we calculate that about 10 to 15 percent of it will have to remain to oil the wheels of corruption so that the drugs can be sent out of town. But if that was the, the only part of the story, that would have been okay. But we are seeing increasing usage um, out of this 10 to 15 percent that remains in uh, West Africa. Bottom line, narcotics trafficking is not new in West Africa. Unfortunately, there's a certain international discourse that creates the impression that this is new. This is not new at all. I mean, when I was a kid about 45, close to 50 years ago, I remember uh, women being arrested at Ghana's airport uh, with cannabis wrapped around them. So there is a certain historicity to narcotics trafficking in West Africa, probably going back more than 100 years. And then, and then the, the perception that we have that traveling from the coastal states to, say, southern Algeria is such a long distance. That is not it. I mean, people have been traversing the Sahara for, for decades, uh, I mean, if not for uh, uh, centuries. But I think what we are beginning to see in West Africa, particularly from the mid uh, or from the early 2000s, is that we are seeing a strategic shift uh, of Latin American drug uh, syndicate towards a rapidly growing uh, market in uh, Europe. But I mean, the shift through West Africa is very strategic. First, apart from Nigeria, no West African country has a navy of sorts. Uh, 
air traffic control is almost non-existent. It's actually a miracle that the planes take off and land without uh, major catastrophes. Um, you know, there are so many landing sites, increasing communities that are happy for the spin-offs arising out of this trade. You know, I mean, as, as I said, there's nobody in this room who will be given a traditional uh, title, certainly not uh, Professor Tandika here, you know, because we don't bring about change in our, in our societies or financial change. And therefore, West Africa increasingly has become a hub for the cocaine uh, trafficking. This is not just about drug trafficking. Narcotics has become a major security threat. Unfortunately, most West African states are not uh, thinking about it. And that when we talk about West Africa as, as an ideal choice and as a logistical transit center for drug trafficking, it's because of its uh, geography. It facilitates the trade, well-established networks across the sub-region. You know, the smugglers and crime syndicates know each other fairly well. There's a vulnerable political environment that creates opportunities for the operation. No single West African state has any laws governing uh, political financing. Across West Africa, every single state has, has experienced a senior uh, politician who has been arrested for either consorting with narcotics, drug gangs. Um, in Ghana, we have a member of parliament, you know, residing in an American uh, prison. Uh, in Nigeria, a senator who was head of the um, Senate Committee on Police Affairs is in prison in the Gambia, senior police officers in Sierra Leone, the minister for uh, communication, you know, hired a jet with 700 kilos. The story I'm telling is that the sub-region is under threat from these uh, criminal gangs. But it's not just the uh, criminal gangs alone from Latin America and Central America. There's an enabling and a willing environment in West Africa that says, please bring your drugs. Thank you very much. We are happy to take part of it. And then hopefully we will send it uh, onward to Western uh, Europe, where there's a great appetite for this anyway. So those of you who understand economics, it's a matter of buying and selling. So let me start by giving, providing an overview of what I perceive to be the main threat that arise from this trade. Um, then I will discuss in some detail what is happening in Mali and how it has come about. And hopefully, if the chair will be kind enough to give me two more minutes, I will speak about the international intervention plan for Mali. Even before it started, I can tell you point blank, it will fail. Because the African Union and ECOWAS are fighting the UN on the other, accusing the UN of not uh, consulting it, and, that's what, and therefore there is a perception that, well, okay, we will send you the troops, but we will send you the worst of our troops. And our troops have not been trained to fight in the desert also. So I think I can say without any shadow of doubt um, that that intervention force will be shipped. Uh, they, will come, they will come running home. Some of them will be radicalized, and they will come to their capitals and attempt to practice what they have seen, heard, and learned in Mali. But that is the third part of the story. So let me start with the first part. Over the last couple of years, uh, the Security Council has consistently 
uh, been appraised of what is happening in West Africa in, in relation to the narcotics trade. But those were sort of fairly uh, routine uh, uh, briefings. So in 2009 and 10, from the Kofi Annan Peacekeeping Training Center, we traveled to Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso, Mauritania, and Senegal, plotted and tracked uh, Al-Qaeda's work, the way that they had infiltrated the political class, and Al-Qaeda in northern Mali and in Niger were, were actually functioned as, as the tax collector on behalf of government. Uh, the report was presented to the Security Council. Of course, you can all imagine what uh, happened. All the five West African countries claimed that we had made up the story. The Nigerians were extremely furious. Uh, the report was basically a 56-page re re report was reduced to 15 pages. Mali has come to prove that our governments in West Africa, first, are hypocritical, that they are in, in self-denial, um, and that and, until they get their heads out of the bushes, uh, the narcotics guns are going to chase them out of town. Not only that, we've seen the way in which the Security Council over time has also adopted quite a number of presidential statements, Security Council reports, and since 2000, almost about 30 to 40 percent of all peacekeeping mandates have something related to transnational crime. Now the question is, what is the UN itself doing in ensuring um, that there is a certain uh, response to the challenges that, that arise from this trade? My argument is that by virtue of the US, the UN recognizing that this is a challenge, uh, it is contributing at least to placing uh, this problem squarely on the agenda. Now, as to whether its partners in West Africa are bold enough to speak about it, to provide the financial basis that allows their institutions to respond, uh, that is another story altogether. But in July 2012, it had become clear to the United Nations Office for Drugs and Crime that narcotics had become the single major threat to West Africa's uh, stability. According to its head, some 30 tons of cocaine and about 400 kilos of heroin were trafficked through West Africa in 2011. The problem with some of these UN reports is that they are very ad hoc. Uh, you are sometimes not too sure how the statistics are gathered. Let me give you an example. This same organization in January this year wrote a report talking about how there's been a dramatic reduction in cocaine uh, seizures in West Africa. Um, across the sub-region this year alone, several hundreds of kilos of cocaine uh, have been seized. So, so we are not too sure about the figures that have been put out there. Nevertheless, because the economies are fragile and small, uh, probably on the streets of London, I don't know how much a two-bedroom decent flat around these parts of London will cost. Probably about, what, a quarter of a million pounds? Probably. Now, if you get that kind of money in Ghana, you may probably become a parliamentarian at least. If you play your cards well, maybe a minister of defense. If you have the proper names, probably... Sierra Leone and Liberia and probably Gambia, you may become His Excellency the President. So when in the international discourse people accuse uh, scholars like myself 
that but the trade is not that big. Why are you making so much noise about it? I think they forget that the economies through which these drugs flow are small economies, in which 10,000 pounds buys you a traditional title or something more than that. 10,000 pounds gives you power, gives you access. You see, so what will give you the same access in the UK, or probably not, might, you know, will transform communities and, and will transform life. So first is that, you know, we are beginning to see these flows through uh, West Africa. In Guinea and Nigeria, uh, we have found some uh, methamphetamine labs. If that is true, then I think we are seeing a dramatic change in the dynamics around narcotics uh, smuggling uh, in, in West Africa. For ECOWAS member states, whose heads of states are terribly interested in patting each other on the back, they have actually finally accepted, quote, drugs trafficking has become an enemy of the state and the rule of law, existing as a parallel power that rivals the legal system. But this is the rhetorical part. I think one of my colleagues who sits or who says with me as an advisor to the West African Commission on Drugs is here. Uh, so probably she might contribute to the conversation a little bit. West African leaders are great in talking and signing documents. As to whether they will put their money where it matters, it's a totally different story. But recent seizures in West Africa is beginning to paint some particular type of picture. First, it shows how the work of these trafficking networks um, is facilitated by a range of actors, including businessmen, politicians. Now, when I talk about politicians uh, in West Africa, I become personal and glad. But as I said, I mean, that is the least of my problems. Members of the security forces. In Ghana, the second and the third most powerful security officers who actually taught at the Kofi Annan Center with me have just been arrested uh, for running a cocaine gang, you know, that is the deputy head of the CID uh, and the third most powerful uh, pl uh, police officer. Of course, they have so much information that they've threatened and intimidated the political class. One has just been appointed as the commander uh, of a region and, and uh, previously also served in another uh, job. So we are seeing the way that the state is being infiltrated and bombarded by these guys. But we are seeing the judiciary. Two British girls were arrested in Ghana. The British government twisted the arms of the judiciary instead of being thrown in for 20 years and the key thrown away. Aid was thrown in, you know, the government was intimidated, and the girls were brought here. So there's a certain hypocrisy when we talk about, about responding to the challenges posed by these uh, narcotics gangs. Okay? The UK government doesn't want UK citizens to sit in Ghanaian jails. But who should sit in Ghanaian jails? Me? Definitely not. I prefer the UK jail if I have to go to jail. You know, so, so we need to ask ourselves some very tough questions. If you traffic drugs in Ghana and you are caught, you will go to a Samoan prison. There will be no mattress. You will eat your rice without uh, sauce. You won't have meat and fish. There will be no electricity. You will sleep in a room 52 degrees centigrade. Precisely because when you do drugs, you are ruining the next generation. You are threatening the stability of a whole nation. So I think the British government in this case has been terribly hypocritical. Of course, here yeah, I can say this. I finish and walk to my hotel without any fear that somebody is going to slap me. <laughs> 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 Clergymen, 
I think if there's an anthropologist here who knows about the church business in West Africa, you can say a church business is, is a mega industry. It's an, they are NGOs, they are not taxed. But businessmen, oh, sorry, uh, clergymen are involved in this business big time. Traditional leaders and youth, probably during the question and answer time, I will focus on these traditional leaders a little bit. There is an uneasy fit between the traditional and the modern state. An uneasy fit that allows criminals to use the interstices of this uneasy fit and allows the traditional leaders to back protect and to support them. And of course, the old boogie of porous borders, weak institutions, corruption, political patronage, poverty, blah, 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 blah. You know, those ones are not new. I think what is new is the way that the public sector is being infiltrated consistently. Whilst the public sector institutions don't talk, criminal gangs talk. They share information. They invest in young people, select them whilst they're in the poor schools, make sure they are addicted. So by the time they get into public office, they cannot do what they need to do. Just about a couple of months ago, five months ago, 1.5 tons of cannabis worth about 4.3 million British pounds came through the Accra airport, was seized at Heathrow. Question, how could such a huge amount get onto that plane or several planes? Okay, so when we talk about these networks, it's not just some little niggly people running around and making trial and error, no. These guys are, are equally smart and intelligent as, as uh, anyone in this room. But not only that, drug trafficking has also served to bolster the legitimacy of formal and traditional leaders who are involved in this drug trade. I've, I've said this and I'll keep on saying it. Politics in West Africa is partially driven by the funds that arise from the trade. And that is why our politicians are unwilling, unprepared, and dare not draw up laws around uh, uh, party financing. But we're also seeing the reinvestment of drug-related funds in the community. Okay, precisely because the modern West African state from Nigeria, Ghana, Senegal, Togo, Benin, Niger, Mali, whatever, is just not there. The optimism of the independence movement has not been fulfilled. And therefore, people are desperate to grasp at anything that will give them a certain semblance of a decent life. So we are seeing the way in which those who engage in this trade reinvest their profits in their local communities, providing them significant social and political clout. I would never, under my wildest dreams, you make me the vice chancellor, the chancellor of this university, I will never be given the title of a development chief because I can't, after I've paid my taxes to the British government, <laughs> build a clinic? No. I can't pay the school fees of 150 people? No. I cannot build a new palace for the chief? No. Or on a yearly basis, paint the Catholic church or the Presbyterian church or the mosque? No. None of us in this room can do that. Okay, so we are seeing the way that because of the reinvestment of the profits accruing from these trade, those who play critical roles in these networks are being given all kinds of traditional titles. In my language, we will call you an, a, a, a development chief. 
okay? Uh, we will call you an Osamari man, a warrior, somebody who has brought drugs to Western Europe, conquered, double-crossed, swindled uh, the security services, and brought the money back home. So we will give you a title, probably name a street after you. Mm? And when we hold our festivals, we may mention your name uh, somewhere. One of the main security threats also that I think we need uh, to be aware of is that we are beginning to see the ability of criminal networks and their illicit funds to infiltrate security and government agencies, transform and influence the motivations of its uh, members, and increasingly reorient the objectives um, of both legitimacy or, 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 or of, of the democratic process. As I sit here, I am not too sure who elected officials in West Africa are beholden to. The public rhetoric is good. It's excellent. I am not sure who they owe allegiance to, whether to the Constitution, to the citizens who voted for them, or to those who may have uh, funded them. And therefore, part of the, the dynamics that we seek to understand in, in West Africa that we are trying to understand the threats posed by drug traffickers and their networks and their ability to reshape the relational dynamics um, between and among political actors, security actors, and the citizens of our, 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 our states and the business community. Precisely because every time someone is arrested, every time a huge shipment comes into town, it rocks the very foundations of the states, from Senegal to Gambia, right down to Nigeria. And therefore, most of the conditions that facilitate drug trafficking in and around West Africa, I argue, are considerably more nuanced than we, we habitually read in the newspapers and in, and in the very few academic papers that we see around. <coughs> Part of my argument is that we need to locate it in the nature of the state, the nature of the post-colonial West African state. We need to understand the characteristics of its top state actors. As I mentioned earlier, we need to understand the uneasy fit uh, between the traditional state and the modern state. We need to understand how community leaders increasingly, through their contacts with these trafficking gangs, are able uh, to play the role of the state. So let me, let me speak a bit now or give some examples about some particular countries. <clears throat> if you read the literature, people consider a Guinea-Bissau as the major threat. It was. It, it's normal. Trafficking networks don't want unstable states. They want states that have a certain level of functionality, of banks where you can transfer your money, fairly decent, luxurious hotels where you can pay uh, $150 and above and probably get a decent uh, smoked salmon and a, a, a decent glass of Chablis. Uh, they want an airport that people don't target too often or the law enforcement agencies in Europe don't target. 
you know, they want a country that has signed on to the Financial Action Task Force, has a financial intelligence unit, it has all the trappings of a modern functional state, but does not function. You know, countries like Liberia, Sierra Leone, Ghana, uh, Benin. Okay, so I think we need to shift that lens away from, from uh, Guinea-Bissau. There is also a concern that as the trade continues to grow, there will be violence. I, I don't think so. I don't think we are going to see escalating levels of violence as we have seen in Mexico. My argument is very simple. When you are the one who pays the community's development program, and not the state, when you assassinate that person, you only don't have his criminal gangs chasing you. You have his whole community chasing you. And therefore, when you make the calculations, it's better to sit down and lose that little trade than to have 10,000 people trying to chase you and kill you. So I don't think we are going to see that level of violence. But also that, I mean, I'm, I, am, I am not a cultural anthropologist, but as I study this and try to understand the role of uh, money, family, identity, community, blood, if you listen to the proverbs along the West Coast, in most of the communities where this trade is, is embedded, their local sayings talk about uh, money as blood. If money is blood and I bring the money, it will be tied to you if you try to kill me. Or it will be tied to you if you try to put, uh, put me into prison. These are things that we don't understand uh, very much. And there are sayings about the way that money resolves all kinds of problems. The the end result is that those who bring in the money are more often than not not challenged by their communities as to how they made those monies. The interest basically is that those monies should and must be used to resolve some of the problems that people see. <coughs> but there's also another challenge that I think we need, we need to uh, understand. That there's a tendency to assess the impact of trafficking networks by the degree of violence that their actions provoke. In West Africa, we, are, we haven't seen um, this kind of violence. And therefore, if the correlation is that low violence means that the trade is not that important, then I think we are going to lose sight of some of the very important structural relationships between the traffickers on one hand, uh, politicians, and business elites on the other. And it is this understated and overlooked structural interconnections that allowed uh, the Mali Sea situation um, to occur. So let me speak for about 10 minutes concerning the Mali situation. If you read the, some of the, the indices for stable, functional, democratic states, all of them place Mali as a democratic state, strong functional institutions, a government that was doing so well, Mr. Amadou Toumanu Toure was a darling of everybody. You know, a soldier who had handed over power willingly, come back to win an election, served, I think, two terms, 
gone out of office, come back. But we now know, or at least we knew, three years before what has happened happened, um, that things were not as they looked. That Mr. Tumani's government had been infiltrated by criminal gangs. In 2009, his governor, Fokeda, was kind enough to invite me to, to uh, his, uh, his fort. So we stood in Kedal and he pointed out to me, that is Al-Qaeda going, the 104 by 4 Lexus vehicles. And why couldn't he do anything about it? Because the Malian state was not there. Al-Qaeda had come in, provided social welfare goods, had intermarried, joined forces with the local uh, traffickers, the, the Tuaregs. And um, when academics like myself dare to write something against the president and the whole world laughs, I become the criminal. So occasionally I'll put my feet up on my ta table in my office, look at the beautiful Gulf of Guinea, and uh, when I've traveled like this, and I've been able to afford a decent bottle of malt whiskey, I'll pour a little bit around 4.30 in the evening and say, well, uh, thank God that the policy people occasionally don't listen to academics. Now, I can afford to be invited to come and sit here and talk about how the people did not listen to me. But there's a huge gap between what politicians and policy people want to hear and what action-oriented uh, field research shows. Right now, you can't, Ghana cannot do anything wrong. But we are concerned about Ghana. I'm concerned about Ghana. But I'm described as a pessimist. So every time when I travel, I have my passport in my pocket, or my passport's in my pocket, I have a valid ticket, so that when it happens, I can go to Togo and escape. I'm not happy talking about it this way, but that is the reality. There's a certain unwillingness to accept that some of the states that we think are doing well are actually not doing well. Because what is Ghana in the international discourse? A country that over the past five years has had economic growth of about what, 9 to 10% annually, um, supposedly democratic, holds elections every four years. Uh, now there's a contestation about the results. How do we ask tough questions about even seemingly functional states uh, without getting the powers that be on our heads? So what is the Mali story? By 2010, Al-Qaeda was a tax collector in the whole of the northern part of Mali, number one. Number two, we knew, and everybody knew, that a few Spanish and Portuguese big narcotic traffickers were in Bamako trafficking narcotics, big time. Number three, we know when air cocaine crashed that that flight passed over seven West African countries. None of them had any air traffic control to speak about. It crash landed. The drugs were taken out of the plane, estimated 1.5 tons. The plane was then satellite. <clears throat> By the time the security services got there, everything was gone. But it is not just about that aircraft. We are seeing in West Africa 
false registrations, plain registrations, false tail markings, uh, false flight paths being, um, being filed, and precisely because there's no, uh, there's no um, air traffic control, these guys can come in and go as they want. By 2011, in Mali, Al-Qaeda wielded decisive political and military influence, certainly above Gao. The unfortunate thing about Mali is that you couldn't talk about state restructuring without being seen through the lens of U.S. counterterrorism strategy. Donald, Donald, Mr. Donald Rumsfeld did not help with his Pan-Sahelian initiative. That said, here is half a billion dollars. What do you want? This is the way I think your security problems are. If you agree with me, you will get some of that money. I'm saying this because I said, <clears throat> as head of counterterrorism for the African Union for two and a half years, and I know how occasionally, if you are not strong, you can be pushed around. But it's not only about Mali. In Ghana, we've noticed how Al-Qaeda comes down to Accra and other parts of Ghana to try to buy cocaine in commercial quantities. In 2009 and 2010, um, three Al-Qaeda operatives, we arrested them for cocaine trafficking. The Americans ran them through their fancy stuff and realized that they were Al-Qaeda. And very gladly, they were renditioned somewhere. I don't know where. But also that, uh, please, don't, don't be too bold. Don't go to northern Mali. Don't go to parts of Mauritania. Don't go to northern parts of uh, Niger. You will be kidnapped. Why? Because it's big business. Tandika, myself, the lady in glasses, the gentleman in the natty tie up there, our governments will not pay a cent for us. Al-Qaeda in the last five years has gone, has um, raked in about 85 million U.S. dollars from uh, ransoming people from the West. So please, whether your, your, your uh, study is so fascinating, don't, make that, don't take that risk of going to the northern part of this country. You will be kidnapped. I went there for five months. Nobody knows I'm from Ghana. If you kidnap me, my government won't pay. You would have fed me, giving me water, giving me a place to sleep. It's bad business. You would have lost. So, so please don't go there. Okay. Um, we've seen the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia together with Al-Qaeda and some of the trafficking networks also attempting to buy drugs. Now, there's a bit of uh, controversy where, where that, these guys were actually from the FARC. Um, but that's what the story tells us. What is going to happen to Mali? Mali will be with us for a long time to come. Um, I think there was an article in The Guardian two days ago or so in which a journalist had gone to Timbuktu and spoken to a lot of young people uh, who had driven these trucks uh, and are looking for an opportunity to drive these trucks again. Because in Timbuktu, Gao, Kedal, uh, Sikasso, you can see the buildings of those who engage in this trade. It's not like those of us in this classroom, but that some people have double doctorates and all that. You can't build those houses. You know, so you and I, certainly, we are not seen as successful people. We are not the role um, models. So people are waiting, sitting tight, for the French to leave uh, and for the UN African Union forces also to leave. But let me speak very briefly because I think um, Chair is looking at his watch. 
Sure, thanks. The Security Council, a couple of days ago, passed Resolution 2100. Quote, that expresses concern over the serious threats posed by transnational organized crime in the Sahel and its increasing links in some cases with terrorism. It names all the four major actors in Mali as terrorist groups. The African Union has protested and claimed, quote, that it knows with concern that Africa was not appropriately consulted in the drafting and consultation process that led to the adoption of the UN Security Council resolution. Bottom line, we will send our West troops. Troops that may actually sympathize and come back and cause some trouble. There's politics around who should head the mission. But taking into consideration what led to Mali's uh, collapse, taking into consideration what I've just uh, quoted from the mandate, the, the seven core du uh, duties that this stabilization force is expected to undertake relates to stabilization of the population centers, and support for the re-establishment of state authority throughout the country. Mali now has about 40 or 50 political parties. It's the same old class desperate to get back to power. You don't re-establish state authority when it's the same people who are, are, are coming back. Uh, protection of civilians, promotion and protection of human rights, humanitarian assistance, cultural preservation, support for national and international justice. He doesn't talk very much about drugs. Doesn't talk about the youth. Doesn't talk about the women. So that those who have borne the brunt of the bogus Malian state, whose failures led Al Qaeda to come in and create the trouble in the first place, <laughs> the UN has not has decided not to talk about them. So who would they owe our allegiance to? To the UN, <laughs> to the African Union, to the Malian state, or to those who provide them with social welfare goods? I think the choices are very clear. I will end here and take some questions from you, Tandika. Thank you. So we go straight to questions. I'll take three questions and then um, response. And... No questions? Well, maybe no questions. I mean, no, there are no questions. Any questions? Oh, yeah, about a year ago, there was a military coup in Mali, and uh, it seemed to me a crazy thing for ECOWAS to have an oil blockade. Uh, you know, because as you self say, democracy is, is a farce anyway. So to make an oil blockade, uh, you know, it was to, to achieve nothing worth doing. And of course, as a result of that oil blockade, the, the general had to resigned, although he was still the most powerful man in the country. The army was obviously didn't know who was the boss and just deserted the northern two-thirds of Mali like that. So all the problems can be uh, put back a year ago to the stupid, unbelievably stupid, predictable um, disaster caused by ECOWAS having an oil blockade of a landlocked country, which obviously is going to force the government to resign. So it seems to me like a big part of the problem that you're trying to get at has to do with corruption. 
and possibly, if you want to talk about it in these terms, a culture of corruption in West Africa. I mean, you can think of it more broadly as um, patronage networks or, or however it is that you want to phrase it, but fundamentally there is a problem with governance. And I think that's a very deep-seated problem, um, as we've been hearing for many years in places like Nigeria, for example. Um, I guess what I'm hoping for you is a little bit of optimism. How do we tackle something like this? How is that possible? It's a, it's, some would say, um, certainly the people that I know in West Africa would say that it's very deeply entrenched. Um, I worked uh, um, as a consultant for the UN and wrote uh, many years ago the development plan for the Gambia and then for Liberia. And one of the things that struck me very strongly was the competition between the aid givers, the aid donors. Um, from a lot of what you say, um, I get a feeling that things are getting worse and worse. And the solution may well be a counterintuitive one. The Western aid donors, the members of the DAC, have increasingly abandoned aid conditionality. What I read, what I understand, is that perhaps the opposite is now required. Very strict conditions under which one helps nation building and not undermines it by a variety of policies and working through a variety of agents within the countries themselves. Well, thank you very much. I mean, I'm not too sure whether I'm competent enough to answer all these questions. But the echo was one. Um, ECOWAS has a problem. 18 months ago, uh, I spoke in uh, in more moderated tones uh, than I've spoken today about ECOWAS. The president then, uh, a character who could barely walk, but it's an old politician who doesn't like anybody to speak contrary to what he believes. Heard what I had said on television and radio. And although the Kofi Annan Peacekeeping Training Center is, um, we are supposed to be an ECOWAS center of excellence for training and research, this Mr. President called Victor Gbeho then wrote a formal letter to my boss and said ECOWAS will not collaborate with Kofi Annan Center again because Kwesenin has criticized ECOWAS for being incompetent in terms of the way that it's handled the Malian crisis and actually described the institution as a joke. Now I will describe it as a double joke. <laughs> now, when you have a leader who is so stupid and so myopic in his thinking and his, his behavior, then the organization is run down. So my boss, being a very dignified, elderly, nice gentleman, called me over tea. I guess we may have also drank something much stronger. And then he suggested, that, look, why can't you call your journalist friend and let him write something to the effect that he misquoted you? <laughs> so my journalist friend wrote that he misquoted me. And this man then visited us the next time we invited him. You can't have a multilateral institution that has a leader who is so petty and is much more interested in the criticisms that come around or, or, or uh, that are leveled 
at its institution and not in business. And therefore, the decision-making process around when to put in sanctions, what types of sanctions, are not predicated on, on any knowledge at all. Mr. President wakes up on this particular side of the bed and decides, that, look, oh, yes, I think 20 years ago I thought there was something called a sanctions regime. Um, <laughs> Mali doesn't buy oil <coughs> from most West African countries. Um, some helicopter spare parts were seized in Guinea. Um, eventually they were released. The oil blockade was a failure. Um, every single blockade has been a failure precisely because the military officer who made the coup, I used to employ him at the Kofi Annan Center to come and teach a course on civil control over the military or the security services. So he basically took the theory from the classroom and then mis, uh, misconstrued it and then implemented it. Uh, he made the coup and made himself Mr. President. But the interesting thing with this guy is that precisely because he knows that the the political class is corrupt. He started, and, and I think this is where in our engagement with these countries we need to begin to understand the role that culture plays. This gentleman now dresses in particular ways using a walking stick and wearing mad cloth from his hunter traditional group. And among the Malian people, hunters are supposed to be upright, accountable, decent, honest, fight for people's rights, so that although he's been, he's not part of the formal political process to reconcile the state and to bring stability to Bamako, probably he's the single most respected person in Bamako right now. Because he's the same old class who are, are, are coming back. You, if you go to Abuja right now, probably three quarters of the top people of the course are, are out of the place, claiming to be going to Mali. And I think this ties in to the, to, the, um, to the aid question. If you go to Mali, uh, to Bamako right now, it's about who gets a P5 job. About, but how come that Juan has got a D1 job? And uh, No, 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 the next D1 job. It's like a marketplace among the internationals. The survival of the state and the, and the lives of the ordinary people who are suffering is not part of the it's not part of the calculus. So, so, I mean, I think, let me then jump to the third part. The aid givers themselves are not interested in me becoming fairly uh, self-subsistent. No. I mean, we've built capacity on this continent in Africa for, I don't know what, for 50 years. There's considerably less capacity. So we are doing something wrong. I mean, when I used to live in Denmark, um, I always wondered, I mean, why this fascination about aid? I mean, who has asked you for aid? I mean, we sit in Copenhagen, craft fancy documents, and decide to put a ball hold here. But, I mean, but you've not spoken to my grandmother in the village. What you've done is to talk to the elites in Accra who have given you a conception of what they think my grandmother needs in the village. But this fellow has not gone to the village for the past 15 years. When he goes and he's stolen part of that aid money to buy himself an XJ Jaguar, which is my dream car, but I doubt if I can afford it. Um, he puts this car on a flatbed the last 10 kilometers, but he wants the people in his village to see that he has arrived, as we say in West Africa. 
that he's successful. Me, please keep your aid. When we are ready, we will come and say, can we have a chat about it? There is, we, are, we are using this aid wrongly somehow. Because we don't have more portable water. No. Considerably less people have access to electricity. Eh, sorry, uh, health, public health. More pregnant women are still dying. <coughs> access to condom is low. So, aren't we helping ourselves more when we talk about this aid business? I think it is. But I think there's a certain hypocrisy around the giving of aid. When Mr. Bush declared the war on terror, every single major OECD country diverted aid money from education, health, water, to the softer security side, training police forces, providing tear gas. Tear gas against whom? Denmark, Norway, Australia, Japan, Finland, all these traditional aid givers diverted their aid. Okay, so as I uh, grow a few more gray hairs, I begin to wonder truly, that strict conditionality that you, you talk about, that is it. When you allow us to sit back and to ask ourselves, how do we ensure that we survive? Then we can come with original ideas, and then we can say, look, can you put down these stringent rules that allows us to use the money? Because no country, certainly not the UK, deals with DFID in terms of how that money is given and used the way that they would have dealt with, say, the national health uh, scheme here. So my question is very simple. If you believe in aid, use the same criteria for ensuring that the money is used well in the UK as the money is used in Ghana. And I don't have any doubt at all that there's also a lot of corruption in the aid business. So the corruption thing is not just me and my people, or Tandike and I. The glue that binds the aid business to Africa is corruption. When I went to Ghana after 20 years in exile, where I met Mr. Pastor Tandika in Denmark, I was quite surprised that there was a Danish diplomat <coughs> in the Danish embassy who gave a friend of mine a, a bit of a contract. And uh, when it was time to sign, so do please, uh, Masha, look, I'm in a bit of a rush. Can't you just sign here? $2,000, of course. Masha, as a poor academic, would be very happy. $2,000, maybe 15% income tax. A lot of money, she can go on holiday. This consultant then met the ambassador a couple of months later. And the ambassador said, oh, I'm truly very sorry. You know, we didn't have enough money, and therefore, you know, the money we gave you was small. Then this academic friend was, oh, no, please, ambassador, you know, $2,500 or so for that job was very good. He said, what? That is less than 10% of what you ought to have earned. That woman, less yes, person, was eventually booted out of town and sat from the foreign ministry. Corruption cuts two ways, and there's no doubt that uh, for the aid people also, they benefit a lot. But if corruption is a problem, I think we can't legislate against this. Living in Ghana, I struggle, really, to ask myself, what is corruption? I, I just don't know. Um, because, look, 
when government will not build roads, when there are no decent public clinics, and your kid goes to a school and you are not sure whether after 10 years that kid can do the basic sums, nor read nor write, you've got to find alternatives for a private clinic to buy a four-wheel drive um, and to send your kid to a good school. Those are damn expensive. So I am at a loss, truly, as to what it is. And I don't think it has anything about a culture of corruption. Uh, people need to survive. When I was in Copenhagen all these years doing a PhD, I think Tandika might remember this. When we did field work, uh, we got a little bit of money that allowed us to take somebody for dinner in the hope that the person will give you a photocopy of an original document. What do you call that? You know? So at the Kofiana Peacekeeping Training Center, next year, I want to establish a center for European studies focusing on culture and European thought. So there are some of these things about the culture of impunity, the culture of corruption. We will turn it around and look at the counterfactuals. After 20 years in Denmark, I can assure you that patronage networks work well. Tandika will tell you. Uh, when we went first, there was a presupposition that Danish is so difficult, people can't learn it. But we got there as asylum applicants, and there were five groups of asylum applicants from Iran, Iraq, Syria, South Africa, and Ghana. For those of us who went, don't forget, English is about my fifth language. So learning yet another language was, was fairly straightforward. The Danish state had, because the Turkish had come there in the 50s and 60s, and they had taken them from some place in Anatolia and hadn't gone to school, learning Danish was difficult. So the Danish government was very boldly, very kindly, very humanely, had said 10% of all university places would be for foreigners. Within six months, most of us took advanced level Danish, passed, went to university, suddenly we're competing over the 10%. They said, no, 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 now you can't do that. So I think as we play these games, um, African universities will need to establish centers of European studies. This is so that some of these standard phrases, um, patronage, patronage works. You know, probably there are more Danish trained dentists and pharmacists in this country than in Denmark. Because when they finish, they don't get jobs. Of course, I finished and took my PhD home. And I haven't re 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 regretted it one bit. I wouldn't have gotten a job. Tandika knows it. Another round? So just to yes. Crazy is such a wonderfully positive word. Look for something stronger. Something stronger. <laughs> no, crazy is way too positive. Any more comments? Yes, Hi, nice to see you, Kwesi. We missed you last week. Uh, we have, uh, there's a whole school of thought out there that thinks that West Africa has something to learn about, um, about drugs from the Latin American experience. And the Latin American experience, which will also be talked about in an event here tomorrow with the Guatemalans, is at the point where um, sitting heads of state are challenging the idea of 
sort of repression-based or prohibitionist drug policies. They're challenging the U.S. drug war paradigm. We now have states that are talking seriously about things like state, regula state regulation of cannabis and so on. There begins to be conversation about whether such a thing is possible in the West African context. I wonder if you can even begin to speculate about state regulation of something like cannabis in the way that regulation of tobacco happens such as it is, um, or whether this is, a, this is a way of thinking that we shouldn't even bother, a road that we shouldn't even bother going down. They wrote that actually in Ghana, the president was doing really well, and um, he promised for the oil to use it <coughs> very accountably, and that everybody, all the like people working for the government, were actually being given classes in accountability. And you just said that they really weren't good at all. So I was just wondering, um, how is that like these two perceptions, if they're completely separate, or if the Economist had some sort of a positive aspect? And I was also wondering, you were saying that all the money was uh, that partially the governments were being funded by traffic, uh, by drug trafficking. And I was wondering if you think that oil could replace it in Ghana? So like the revenue that's meant to be coming, this huge amount from the offshore, if that could be replaced and if it could help the government. Hi, thank you so much, Kwesi, for um, bringing up all the nuances, I think, of the trafficking networks. You, I have two questions. One is about the, the examples that you used are mostly from uh, illicit drugs. Um, and I was just wondering, or illegal drugs, or, uh, and I was just wondering if you could talk a bit about, or if you could mention um, counterfeit drugs, mm. uh, sort of so-called legitimate drugs in fraudulent or counterfeit forms. So I'm just thinking about all the anti-malarial drugs that have been watered down, interfered with, so on, that are circulating in parts of West Africa. And the second question is really about the complicity, which you talked about, the profitable collusion, but the profitable collusion of peacekeepers in particular, mm -hmm. the way in which peacekeepers have been, have a, also a history of looting mm -hmm. in uh, large parts of West Africa, but also in Haiti and other places where there are significant trafficking networks going on. I was just wondering if you could comment on that. Okay. Um, no, John, I think your point is very good. I, I worry a bit about this legalization conversation. And it's not so much about the legalization per se, but most of the people who are leading the call for legalization are people who have all held public office before, and they never uttered a word about legalization when they were in public office. They wait until they leave public office, and then they want to talk about it. And I think that is bloody hypocritical. Put your job on the line. Tell the electorate that I truly do believe that we should give Africans the opportunity to, you know, use cannabis resin and probably they may all go mad and won't have a problem with immigration. And let's see if your electorate will vote for you. You know, but I worry that people wait, enjoy the trappings of power, move on to something less public, and then suddenly they want to talk about legalization. If it's about cannabis, then I don't have a problem because people use it anyway. Um, it's abundant. 
um, where my wife and I have our summer house. Uh, last night, about 60 people were arrested for having a cannabis smoking competition at Elmina. Uh, Marsha, you know the town very well. You know, this is a very sleepy <laughs> fishing town. You know, so if it's the cannabis alone, I'm not worried. My worry about the cannabis usage relates to the public health side. That when people use it and get sick, then we claim that they've been, uh, they are possessed. And therefore, that, I think we spoke about this in Ghana a couple of months ago. Um, so that cannabis thing, we have a, I mean, we, we, we've used it and used it and used it. I mean, nobody bothers about it in, in, anymore. So probably we can start uh, with that. I don't have a problem. I have a problem with the U.S. drugs on war. If the DEA, and now they've established an office in Accra, I think, if they bring in their heavy guns, they are disrespect for people's rights. I think we will see a certain level of violence, not against the drug laws, but against the DEA. So I think the US will have to think about it very carefully. The economist writes a lot of crap sometimes. <laughs> you know, uh, for some strange reason, the economy now claims Africa is Africa resurgent. Uh, a couple of years ago, it was a hopeless continent. Uh, five years ago, it was something else. So I don't know which hotel this journalist slept in. Um, but definitely, we have all the laws on our books to create the impression that the oil money is being used well and will be used well. Question. Last year, when the Minister of Finance presented his budget to Parliament, he underreported 1.2 million barrels of oil. It was the private company drilling for the oil that came up and said, but Mr. Minister, this is not what you have taxed us on. So I think you can share this with the journalist, um, and then let's see what he will say. <coughs> but there's a certain ad hocism and selectivity when they come into town. Um, I mean, if you come to my office, probably they won't speak to me because they don't like what I'm saying. Um, will the oil money replace drugs? No. Because the oil money is will be funneled directly into state coffers. The drugs money remains within local communities. Okay, so that by the time it gets to Accra and it trickles down to the local community, the drug lord who came to Copenhagen sold three kilos, got about $27,000, would have paid the school fees of five or six people already. For the state, that would take about five years. Um, I mean, I, I buy all my medications when I'm in town because you cannot trust the medication that you buy in West Africa anymore. I think 90% of all malaria drugs are fake. Um, most of the capsules, amoxicillin, all those, I don't have the names. It's just filled with uh, cassava paste, uh, just like cocaine under the protection of the police officers also turns into condo. So I think that's a way in which West Africans like fake things. Um, but it's big money. I think there's a multi-billion dollar industry. But you are not sure about your, about your diabetes medication. You are not sure about your high blood pressure medication. Um, so it's, it's quite a big problem. Peacekeepers. We know they do drugs. We know they do mining, certainly uh, diamonds, uh, alluvia diamonds. Uh, and gold, 
But we know that they also smuggle quite a lot of um, small arms and light weapons. If the stories we are hearing about Northern Mali are true, that they are gold deposits, then I think quite a number of them will go digging. Um, they may not want to come back home. Um, so there's a lot of complicity. I mean, in Ghana, we try to put them into prison and sack them and seize their pensions as quickly as possible. Uh, but not all member states do that. So, yeah, there's profitable collusion, and I think we will see more of it in the Malian case. I have, I have, a, <coughs> have a question or a question more. Um, one is something with what Napoleon once said about not attributing to, um, to conspiracy, conspiracy what can be explained by incompetence. <laughs> <laughs> that there is a danger in your presentation. Mm -hmm. where, I can't tell when, when, whether what we're talking about is a state that is incompetent mm -hmm. or is weak, or that is a state that is deliberately involved in the drug business itself. Mm -hmm. I think the distinction is important uh, if you're going to think of solutions. That if, <coughs> if, and there, there are many reasons to believe that states in West Africa in the last 20 years have become much weaker. Um, and that part of this may be simply reflection that weakness of the state, that the state is just weak and not necessarily uh, a narco state. Mm -hmm. And that you have also the, one of the ironies of, of liberalization is that the currencies of West Africa are now fairly easy to convert. Uh, well, I say 30 years ago, you couldn't, con if, you, if you brought money in, it was very difficult to get it out. You know? And now it's very easy to, in Africa in general, you, you can easily loan the money because mm -hmm. the, the banking system is, is respectable and uh, the currencies are, are convertible, actually. In fact, there is one reason why the Guinea-Bissau was chosen was because it joined the safer uh, zone, which meant it, it easily could transfer it, you know, the money. So you have that loss of financial control by states in general because it's, uh, as one explanation for their coming in there. So that in a sense, one has to somehow distinguish, if that's possible, between a more conspiratorial version of the criminal state and a more um, competent version <laughs> of the state. If the state actually, uh, you know, I think Napoleon's uh, words here, I mean, I don't always quote Napoleon, but this, I think this case, <laughs> <laughs> says something very interesting. Yeah. Any other questions? Thanks. Until now, you haven't mentioned any kind of uh, any details about conflict uh, between Christian and Muslim and the various shades of Islam that we are finding north of the, uh, more in the center of Africa. We're seeing huge problems now in Nigeria, which come as a bit of a surprise for everybody. Ghana seems to be relatively immune at the moment. We've seen the conflict in Cote d'Ivoire, dividing north and south. How do you see the future? And, and who do you think is Al-Qaeda in Mali? Who's, who is Al-Qaeda? What kind of people see their future tied up with this extreme form of religion? I think in a general sense, the problem is a, is a trans-Sahel problem. I mean, mm -hmm. From East Africa, you, you, know, you, you see it in Sudan, of course. It appears in Chad, it appears the whole. So it's, a, it's a Sahel, Sahel problem. And why is it a Sahel problem? I suppose this is 
You have to remember this, these are countries, historically, the empires of West Africa run east-west, and the colonial divide was north-south. And so you create this uh, incredibly complicated cultural uh, divide. Third question, one more yes, question. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I think my question kind of tags on to the previous one. I was wondering also about the whole conflict in North Mali. Um, as far as I understand, it kind of started as more of an independence struggle for the Tuareg people and then got pretty much hijacked by Al-Qaeda. And I was wondering if you could maybe spend a little bit of time talking about how this kind of fits in with the trafficking networks and uh, the influence of Islam and then the Tuareg uh, wish for independence and how these two kind of work against each other. Well, thank you very much. Let me start with uh, Tandika's uh, very good question. Um, I think the West African states have been weak for quite some time. I think in the 80s and the 90s, uh, we saw a strengthening of state institutions. Um, we saw this second re-democratization re process that saw you know, quite a number of West African states jumping onto the bandwagon, holding elections and all that. But in, the, in that triumphalist period, we also didn't ask ourselves what are the potential challenges and threats to this re-democratizing states. Okay, so we saw the, the balloting process, the declaration of a victor as West African states going strong. How were these parties funded? I mean, not a single African country, we're with, or we're probably very few, South Africa, probably Namibia, Botswana, and a few other countries can actually fund their own elections. Okay, if partners don't come in and pay for the ballot boxes, printing of ballot papers. And I think it was, that is part of the reason where we saw all these dubious groups beginning to come in. People wanted to get into parliament they didn't have money. They knew individuals who had that money, didn't ask the questions. And therefore, there's a cyclical, almost an interdependent relationship in which we democratize, but we get people with dubious linkages to provide us the money. Let me give you a typical empirical case once more from Ghana. In one particular party, to register to run in the primaries of that party, you had to pay the equivalent of $16,000 to run in the primaries, to register to run in the primaries. So you pay $16,000 to the party before you pay for your campaigning for the primaries. So by the time you win, you would have spent close to about $30,000. And now you have to fight for the constituency seat as a parliamentarian against four other competitors. Now, most of the people who are fighting for these seats are school teachers, petty traders, nurses, a few lawyers, so that by the time you become His Excellency the Member of Parliament for E171, you are heavily indebted. How do you pay for that? Your four-year salary is not enough to pay for your debt to become an, uh, a Member of Parliament. And those who be deal in this trade know that. And therefore, we've seen the way in which extremely dubious legislation has been passed in quite a number of the countries. You know, so we democratize, we get the process infiltrated, 
you know, we, we weaken the democratic process uh, or we weaken the state. So there's a certain deliberateness. I don't think those who engage in this are not aware of where the money comes from. I think they know, uh, but they've been hijacked. Um, <coughs> I think there's a northern problem in most West African states. In La Côte d'Ivoire, in Mali, in Togo, in Ghana, in Benin, uh, the question is how do we how do we deal with this northern problem? In most of these countries that I've mentioned, the northern parts of those countries uh, were used in colonial periods as labor areas, so considerably less developed, um, limited educational facilities, health facilities, and precisely because of the way politics is played out in most of these countries. Uh, people in the north don't always feel that they are part or that they are part of the modern state. Um, and so in Cote d'Ivoire, we are seeing this. In Nigeria, we are seeing a similar problem. Who are those who support Al-Qaeda? I think it's basically, it's not those who support Al-Qaeda as much as what role is Al-Qaeda playing in terms of representing the state? I mean, this is something that has been going on probably for at least 10 years. The demand for independence goes back probably to the late 60s because Bamako has never shown any interest in developing the north. Um, our dear friend, Mr. Gaddafi, understood that very well and exploited it uh, for his own ends. Uh, and by the time Mr. Gaddafi was giving the decent uh, goodbye that he got. I think for those who know West Africa, we knew that there, there would be problems. The mercenaries had to find a place to go. Mali was ripe for it. They had the guns. The narratives in Bamako uh, fitted into an armed struggle. And the state of Azawad was de declared. If I tie this in to resolution 2100, passed on 25th April, um, 2013 for Mali that talks about reconstituting the state and having the state control the whole of, of that territory. I'm not sure Bamako can do this. Not in the next 10 years. Now the question is whether the UN is ready to stay in for the very long haul. And I'm not too sure. I'm not too sure at all. Because the mandate recognizes the presence of the French troops and that creates problems. No military commander wants another military force that he doesn't control. Okay, so we are going to see the French commander quarreling with the UN commander. That's what. Monsieur French president, uh, for a man who cannot control his own domestic affairs, then decides to come to Mali. Mm? And the annoying part is that he decides to tell us that he's going to drive the rebels away. Drive them away to where? To Paris? <laughs> now, I mean, there's this disturbingly annoying behavior from European, some European leaders. That statement would never have been accepted in Paris if he had said, well, I'm going to the Basque territory or wherever, and I'm going to drive them out. Drive them out to where? <laughs> the next country? No. So I think the way that the French started this business has worsened it, big time. Uh, but of course, it's improved 
or it did improve his uh, ratings a little bit until his own minister decided to have a false bank account. Well, if that criteria is used in Africa, then we, we won't have any government <laughs> because all our politicians have bank accounts elsewhere. Um, Akim Tuareg's trafficking Islam independence. I think they are all in, 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 in talent. Will Akim go away? No. Uh, in '09, as I traveled in Mali and Niger, they told me point blank, look, these are now our family members, and we don't hand over our family members. They've got kids. They've got businesses. They are accepted as part of the community. The group that we call the Tuaregs are probably made up of about 250 different subgroups, all quarreling among themselves and struggling for power and influence and control over the smuggling of cigarettes, car, petrol, um, of course, four-wheel drives from Spain, uh, a great uh, attraction. I, th I think I worry a bit when we link Al-Qaeda <coughs> with uh, Islam. Al-Qaeda is a business franchise and nothing else. It uses a rhetoric or it uses an Islamic rhetoric to try to recruit and to justify what it does. But it is equally a criminal enterprise uh, as MNLA, uh, as Awad, and all the other criminal enterprises that we, we see. How do we fight it? Strengthen the state. Let Mali, uh, Lord Bamako become a little bit more e effective. This is not something that you do in five to ten years. Rebuilding the state is a long-term process. Unfortunately, the EU is in Bamako with, I think, 250 or 150 uh, military advisors, guarded by 450 private security guards. <laughs> so the EU is more concerned about protecting itself and coming back home safely uh, than to recreating the uh, Malian armed forces. Somebody said uh, probably... Uh, I can't end on, a, on an optimistic note. Um, I had hoped that sometimes one day I'll be given a topic that will be much more optimistic. But I was actually going to ask you that the old Leninist question, which is, what is to be done? <laughs> <laughs> well, now we've moved from Napoleon to Lenin. No, especially in, li in light of three things. One mm -hmm. was that the state is weak and is infiltrated, yeah. right? The judiciary is corrupt. The traditional authorities are compromised. And the external agencies have their own headache. So you're left to questions, uh, what, what are the sources of change in this? Is any, yeah. I mean, do you s Yeah. I think we need to bring the state back in. But the state is corrupt. It's infiltrated. Yeah, but we've got to fight that. We can't fight it. Who are we? Who is going to bring the state back in? Let me turn the question around on you, Tanika. Um... When you talk about violent political groups, there's a certain tendency that if you talk to violent political groups, you are beginning to legitimize them. Should we find, can there be alternative forces within the state that can be identified, supported, encouraged, okay, to begin to fight back? I think there is. Now, the story that I've told is not as negative or probably as pessimistic as it may sound. Because the first step towards an optimistic story is to ensure that you, you know what is terribly bad. If it was that bad, I wouldn't still be living in Ghana after 12 years. Okay, in Ghana we are beginning to see, and in other West African countries, 
an increasingly strong civil society that is able to stand up to government. Of course, they threaten us, they intimidate us. Uh, but if that civil society or those civil society groups do their work very carefully because the state is weak and more often than not doesn't have enough um, good people working for the state, they begin to come to you and to say, can you help us here? Okay, so part of what I've been talking about in terms of Ghana, Nigeria, and all these other states is because we are allowed to do the work that we do, dangerous as it is, that we're actually seen as a partner um, by these states or by the leaders who still attack us anyway. You know, so I think where we need to start this reconstituting the state, if I can phrase it that way, is to go back and say, look, what forces can we identify who can be supported, who can be encouraged to start this fight back? And I think uh, in Ghana, I think civil society groups are doing well. Um, otherwise, I would have left long ago. I mean, I speak worse than I've spoken here tonight. Um, some politicians get angry. Yes, I'm intimidated occasionally, but I don't feel threatened enough to run away again, no. No. I believe that change will come, and by engaging and writing the way we write and speaking the way we speak and confronting those that we think are destroying that space, that is also mine. I think change is beginning to come. It may take a long time. It may not be in my own lifetime, but I think the struggle will continue I am hoping, however, that change will come in my own lifetime. Uh, so I can sit in my garden, put my feet back, listen to jazz music, do some barbecue, and then I'll bring my favorite uh, tipple, which is like a bully, 25 years old. <laughs> Masha knows that. We still have some time here. Any more questions? Should we end it on this, on this very more positive? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I was still going to ask a question, but anyway. Uh... Now, just quickly, I've heard you talk a number of times about, and I think it's really interesting, an untold part of the whole drug story about how with a relatively modest sort of sale, as you say, somebody can become a community leader, as it were. And so, but, but I'd like to know how, why somebody would be motivated to do that. Is, your, is, your, is the suggestion that from there they go on to be able to be more powerful at a higher level or... How do you see that? Is that the ultimate goal for somebody to become, you know, essentially to take the function that the state has abandoned at a local level, or is the pathway to parliament or some other level? No, I think there's an ulterior pleasure in being recognized by your community. I think most of these guys, they don't want to go into government. Politicians will come to them. Ministers will come to them. Um, the chiefs will recognize them with traditional titles. And for most of them, truly, that is where the locus of power lies. I mean, if we take the example of about four years ago, one of the major drug lords, um, the head of the prison service, called me and said, Look, we've just gone to the office and uh, I've heard uh, that this guy is having caviar and lobster flown into him and champagne, and he has a satellite phone and everything. So I said, look, come on, call the minister and tell the minister that, no, this is not right. So uh, he followed my advice. By the time he got to the Ministry of Information, it had been announced that he had been sacked as chief of prisons. Uh, so for most of these guys, they are not interested in political power, per, per se. 
the route to getting political power is that the politicians come to them. Um, the judges come to them. No, so you can sit in your little village, you have the traditional titles. So the Ghanaian parliamentarian who now sits in the US jail, for example, he will never come into parliament again. But the day that this man was imprisoned in the US, his local village held a festival for him. Ministers were there, parliamentarians were there, and the main street in this town called Kranza is named after him. The citation that the village gave in his absence, quote, admonished the youth of the town to follow his shining example. <laughs> we were there last year <coughs> to start some preparatory work to explore how the village is thinking about its return. And we were told across board by the local police chief, by the chief himself, by the school headmaster, by the pastor, that since he was arrested, the town is dead. So they are looking forward to his return. He will bring about businesses, he will create farms, he will create all sorts of things. So the ultimate is not always to get into the political arena. Um, yeah, um, exactly. One minute to eight. I think we have to end now. And and I would think about a wonderful evening and very very interesting discussion on what's obviously a very complex problem for West Africa. I think it's not goes beyond West Africa, but also the other parts of Africa. And, um, and I think good old Casey deserves a big, big applause from all of us. <laughs>